welcome to Talking Research. I am Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence, both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. Today we're talking about Me Too, hashtag Me Too, and um, I think I can assume that everyone listening has an idea of what hashtag Me Too is. Sorry for being pedantic, but I'll still repeat it. It was this online movement that, um, you know, took the world by storm where survivors and victims of sexual violence use hashtag Me Too to share stories of how they had been violated and um, it really blew up. I remember seeing my friends from school in India and university in the UK and really everyone else I'd met around the world. I haven't traveled much but still everyone else I'd met around the world sharing stories and that made me realize that this truly is a global movement. Since it's emerged, Me Too has become really prominent. It's um, it's a big cultural talking point. And I'm talking to Dr. Rachel Loney Howes today. And Rachel is a lecturer in criminology at the University of Wollongong in Australia. And she's researched digital spaces centered around tackling sexual violence. So, so chat rooms and such where women and other victims of sexual violence share their stories and this came before me too and she's also editing a compilation of articles on me too in the form of a book which she's editing with dr bianca Philibon. so so we're gonna talk about all of that today let's dive in hi rachel welcome to talking research how are you today I'm good, thanks, Asmeda. How are you? I'm good too. I'm good too. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, and you know, talking about me too from a research perspective—that's so topical, and you know, something that I'm really excited about. Thank you so much for asking me. I'm really excited to chat to you about it as well. Oh, great. Okay, so tell me about yourself. How would you introduce yourself in a way that you like to be introduced? Uh, so I am a lecturer in criminology at the University of Wollongong here in Australia. I'm about an hour south of. Sydney. My background is really in gender studies and sociology, so I call myself a socio-legal studies scholar. My area of expertise is the use of digital media for anti-sexual violence activism, so I wrote my PhD thesis on what effectively became the Me Too movement before it was the Me Too movement. So I've got, a, I guess, expertise in looking at how activists, survivors uh, engage with digital spaces to talk about experiences of sexual violence to talk about things like rape culture and to think about how we might engage in genuine um, social cultural legal political change Hmm. Uh, I didn't actually know that there was this build up to me too in terms of online spaces I kind of it hit me out of nowhere I mean uh, I didn't really expect it but reading your work you explore online spaces where victims especially women talk about sexual violence and there's that audience and that speaker here connect in terms of people who've who've been victimized sought out these platforms and felt like it was a good space to talk so tell me more about that yeah so you know it's a really interesting question because in the in the mid-2000s feminism was considered to be something that was dead that it had gone into abeyance that no one was really interested in talking about feminism anymore that the goals that feminists in the 1970s had sort of established had been achieved and that there was no need to kind of reopen that conversation. And what we saw happening in around sort of 2008 was the revitalization really of an online feminist presence. And that was primarily established through the development of some pretty cool blogs that still exist now called like Feministing and Jezebel and a few others to name a few that were started, you know, in, in kind of North America around trying to re-establish a feminist consciousness, particularly amongst young people. And so there was these sort of like murmurings, I suppose, around, you know, reinvigoration of consciousness raising, which is an extension of a practice that began in the late 1960s and early 1970s, 
where, you know, women in particular would come together and talk about what Sarah Fairchild described as bitter experiences. So they'd talk about their experiences, not just of violence, for example, but also things like childcare, um, you know, being housewives and the kind of, you know, political conditions of their lives that, you know, relegated them to being housebound or the kinds of politics that existed in the workplace. So in the 1970s, that's when we saw women entering into the workforce in the Western world and in droves, unlike you know previous generations. And what was happening in, in that time was really thinking about how you know the personal is political. And in the late two thousands, that what we that's what we saw happening in online spaces. We saw this reinvigoration of conversations around private experiences that were inherently caused by the political conditions of women's lives. So we see merging out of this kind of fostering of a of a raising of consciousness in the late 2000s a shift towards talking again about experiences of sexual violence and one of the kind of key things that came out of consciousness raising in the 1970s was of course that a lot of women revealed their experiences to each other of sexual violence and that that was perpetrated not just by strangers as was the popular rhetoric at the time and and and, and indeed still is as part of, of the sort of public consciousness around um, authentic perpetrators of sexual violence, for example. But what we saw was that it was, you know, their husbands, their partners, their friends, acquaintances, people that they knew who were perpetrating these acts of sexual violence. And so in the late 2000s, and we started to see the sort of same kinds of conversations happening again. And it was in 2011 where the slut walk movement emerged in response to claims by a Toronto police officer around how women should stop dressing like sluts if they wanted to avoid being raped. We saw this reignition of conversations around sexual violence, primarily, of course, driven by white privileged women in the Western world. But we have seen the spread of slut walk to various other parts of the world that indicate that, of course, it's not just a problem that white women experience. It's a it's a global phenomenon. It's a it's a um, articulation, if you will, of women's political, legal, social, cultural subordination the world over. So from the slut walk movement, we started to see a real strong development of feminist consciousness around the issue of rape and sexual violence. And it wasn't just happening on these kind of big, grandiose scales like the slut walk movement. We see women starting to sort of set up their own blogs to talk about their experiences of sexual violence, to talk about rape culture and inviting other people to engage in these conversations with them. There was also, too, you know, the development of hashtag activism. And around 2014, we saw, for example, the, the rise of hashtag what I was wearing, hashtag um, being raped never reported. And, of course, there were also a bunch of highly publicized sexual assaults in and around that time as well. And in particular, you know, I'm thinking of um, the gang rape and, and death of a young physiotherapy student in Delhi as well, which kind of created this discourse around India being solidified as you know, the capital of rape culture, which of course we know is, is a problematic narrative that's been constructed by Western nations and, and imposed upon the Indian context. But certainly there were a bunch of things that were happening in that late 2000 period up until, you know, 2014. And then it kind of just snowballed up until uh, the emergence of the Me Too movement in 2017. Hmm. Uh, I want to go back to what you said uh, about collective consciousness raising, and that's essentially, if I'm not wrong, uh, people, women wanting to talk about and wanting to draw attention to what they've been facing for centuries, essentially, and the normalization of rape, right? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think that th that's a kind of twofold kind of thing you're saying around the normalization of it, too, because on the one hand, I think society responds to sexual violence as if it's this anomaly experience and they talk about it in terms of outrage and shock and indignation that sexual violence is a problem and yet what consciousness raising does and does and has done in the past is of course that it's shown that it is incredibly normal it's incredibly mundane it's an experience that far too many women are subjected to on a daily basis and so there's this tension, I think, around the way that we respond to sexual violence as a society, because on the one hand, yes, it is absolutely normal in the sense that, you know, the World Health Organization estimates that one in five women conservatively, women and girls conservatively since the age of 15, have experienced some form of sexual violence in their lives. If we throw in on top of that, you know, things like sexual harassment, inappropriate comments, um, all the whole spectrum of what um, Liz Kelly, who's a UK 
academic describes as a continuum of sexual violence, which describes a whole range and spectrum of experiences, you know, that really illustrate that women are navigating and negotiating and deflecting violence every day in their lives. Um, It is absolutely a kind of normalised experience for so many women and having to negotiate that is a very um, significant part of our lives and yet at the same time our politicians and our legal system respond to it as if it's something that's exceptional. And that's a really difficult thing to, to, to address. It's really interesting that you've mapped this emergence of Me Too from what, what you've spoken about, the second wave feminism, which erupted in um, primarily in America in the 1970s, right? Mm-hmm. And um, talked about these, uh, talked about all of this. And, um, and then from there to just digitalization of the conversation. And you've looked at these online spaces and uh, what speaking out in these online spaces is like and the power dynamics there. So before I ask you about that, I want to ask you what a rape script is because um, that's part of your analysis. So what is the rape script? Sure. The rape script is really a kind of a normative or a kind of general understanding of what we imagine sexual violence to look like it's what popular culture what legal interpretations of sexual violence have told us what we think rape ought to look like it's usually involving a so it's very it's usually involving a man and a woman so it's heteronormative that man is the perpetrator the woman is the victim the man and perpetrator is a stranger is unknown to the victim who is often um, ambushed in public or has not got any kind of relationship with this person. And the assault itself usually looks physically violent. The woman or the victim survivor is inherently traumatized by their experience and therefore requires legal intervention or a legalistic response in order to remedy the harms of that sexual assault. So when we're talking about the rape script or we're talking about what um, another academic has described, uh, Tani Sarisia, has described as the, the genre of sexual violence. It's that archetypal narrative around stranger rape, whereby yeah, the, the victim and the perpetrator are unknown to each other. It's inherently violent. It leaves physical scars as well as emotional and traumatic scars, and it requires a legalistic response in order to redress the harms of that particular incident. What I'm interested in is breaking down that normative assumption, that that's what um, a lot of academics have been trying to do for decades now is to really challenge that dominant narrative because we know, like I said before, you know, when thinking about consciousness raising, that so few women actually experience that that kind of rape script whereby the assailant is unknown to the victim survivor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and even I think uh, I've spoken to a couple of child abuse experts. Dr. Nadia Vajra talked about sexual revictimization, and Dr. Francisca Mink talked about uh, child abuse in Sub-Saharan Africa. And you know, anyone who's looking at child abuse will tell you that it will most likely be someone who's known and trusted by the mm-hmm. child. And you know, same goes for uh, probably not in the same way, but it's also very likely that. Uh, anyone who's raping a woman is probably more likely that it's uh, someone who's known than uh, than, than a stranger. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yes, I think um, most recent yeah. statistics in Australia, at least anyway, were indicated that around 85% of victim survivors knew the person who assaulted them. Very few um, didn't know who assaulted them. So it's definitely supported by statistical evidence that women are more likely to be assaulted by someone that they know. Yeah, and I think this this um this idea of a stranger rape in uh, in the rape script it allows you to scapegoat homeless people or immigrants or you know refugees as uh, and you know it allows you to other the rapist and be like this person is uh, is alien, this person is foreign, this person isn't part of our society and then it allows you to dismiss the problem um in general as opposed to looking at how your society or people you're familiar with might be um guilty or might be perpetrating this uh, this crime absolutely it, ex- it exceptionalizes those perpetrators doesn't it it casts them out it pos- positions them as deviant as um not as abnormal 
and often yeah they're, they're men with disabilities or they're men of color or they're refugees as you're saying they're all outsiders right and, and in doing so it removes the conversation from looking more internally and reflecting upon broader social and cultural norms in which violence against women is tolerated or kind of you know get not not talked about in a critical way as as an inherent wrong and so it just fosters this culture around perpetrators of sexual violence or even child sexual abuse you know that they're they're really depraved you know sociopathic men who should just be locked up and cast out of society further rather than looking actually at the patterns within our families the patterns within our cultures the patterns within our societies that create the conditions for men to have access to women's bodies in a way that constructs them with sexual subjectivity and women are passive objects. Yeah, and this brings me to representations of rape and you've analyzed how these representations of rape have transformed over time and especially with the rise of the internet. So, I mean, you've talked about what representations of rape are in in talking about the rape script, but how have they transformed over time? It's a good question because I think on the one hand, they've changed a lot. And on the other hand, I don't think that they've changed very much at all. I think it also, you know, the answer to that question is, you know, certainly with with digital spaces, the capacity to have broader forms of representation around the different types of stories and narratives of, of sexual violence experiences that can be told is certainly greater than, say, it might have been if you were just relying historically as survivors have been on the press picking up their stories or wanting to talk about their experiences in a way that of course is to to sell newspapers or to sell books for example you know there's a there's a strong history of um survivor um autobiographies that are being widely circulated particularly in the united states and often they are usually uh, white middle class cisgender heteronormative um heterosexual women who are talking about experiences of stranger right there's not um much uh, that falls outside the public discourse that looks at or is interested in investing in experiences of of women who don't fit into that category but certainly one of the great things about the internet but of course me too kind of can constrained this a little bit as well is that there is the capacity for there to be a, a broad range of different perspectives and experiences and ideas about what constitutes sexual mm-hmm. violence, for example, to be represented in digital spaces. And one of the questions, I guess, then is who are you or who are these survivors kind of writing these narratives for? Who are they claiming their experiences for? And what's the desired effect or impact mm-hmm. of that too? Because, you know, for example, we can have someone like Alyssa Milano, who's a very well-known um, and, you know, arguably well-liked celebrity, white um, female celebrity, to be able to speak out and, you know, receive the kind of response that she did in relation to getting people to tweet me to juxtapose against someone like Tarana Burke, who of course is doing a very different kind of social justice yeah. advocacy and activism and not having the same kind of response. But I think the backlash against the fact that Milano was a white woman and was trying to kind of take over, not intentionally, I'm sure, but at least um, looked looked suspiciously like that in some ways, um, suggested Mm. that there was some sort of consciousness amongst people that perhaps there is an issue around representation and that people were conscious of that issue around representation. But I think one of the biggest challenges that we still face, and this is something that I've written about a few years ago, was um, in response to particularly the, uh, the, the United Nations campaign called Stop Rape Now, which was really looking at sexual violence and conflict. And too often, particularly in digital campaigns that are, you know, sort of fostered by these global power structures, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, you know, position women of colour as in need of rescue. And I think that that's a very problematic Mm -hmm. way to frame those women not just in terms of their experiences but also in terms of the way that it positions them as unable to respond and fails to address some of the real tireless work that women of color you know in in Australia for example or in the or in the UK or in the United States but also you know in parts of Africa um, in the Middle East and in Asia 
of all these women who have been doing work on the ground for decades on this stuff and yet they continue to be overlooked. Um, and so on the one hand, yes, we have changed the representation modes through the way that digital platforms enable a broad spectrum of people to be able to speak out and to share their experiences and to talk about sexual violence and in both their local context as well as the global context. But the face of anti-rape activism continues to be privileged white women. Hmm. This is this is really interesting because it uh, reminds me of what Alison Phipps says. Mm, uh, yeah. she, she's a British academic as well, and she talks about she talked when I spoke to her. She was talking about this uh, this this idea that uh, Me Too is essentially privileged women arguing with privileged men about their rights, and um, I, I think that's, that's sort of it it's the nail on the head because who can speak in this movement it's very it's mm. i mean i can i have a voice i can say me too and i'll probably be taken seriously but um will the person who will the woman who um you know cleans people's houses will she be taken seriously and and we're both we're both indian women i mean it, it's just this inequality of your rights in this movement and it's not like you've argued it's not really probably not set out that way but it, it that is how it manifests mm. so um yeah, yeah absolutely I mean I think that it's multiple things though too I mean it's it's not just do you have access to say like a digital mouthpiece for example to be able to speak out but it's the mm. position from which you're speaking as well and to what extent is something like me too a useful tool for women who are in precarious working conditions. And I, I also feel like this is part of a broader issue with the movement in which there's never really been any clear goals set out from the start as well. And I think that that's part of a kind of broader challenge with anti-sexual violence activism and the ways in which it's evolved since the 1970s around what is it that the aims are and how is it that we're going to know that they've been achieved and to what extent can we actually feasibly uh, encourage mm. and, and find space for all people who wish to participate? Um, and to what extent does it even matter to, to women who are employed in situations where by, you know, it's, it's not even a question of whether or not they can speak to someone within the workplace in which they're employed to talk about being sexually harassed, for example. But, you know, I mean, what if you're a single mother who's working two to three jobs to feed your children or you're um, someone who might be employed as a domestic servant who's sending money back home to, to to family and you know being able to say me too is not just the loss of your own livelihood but it, the loss of a family an entire family's income as well these kinds mm. of questions of privilege I think Alison Phipps is, in, is right and um, to, to say that of course it's, it's about privileged women arguing with privileged men about their rights and there's a, not a whole heap of critical reflexivity going on at least on the surface yeah yeah and you've looked at sort of what can come after me too or th there's a lot to be done so what do we do next it's the million dollar question isn't it I think <laughs> that <laughs> it's a hard question to answer sometimes too because and as, as, as academics um we often are accused and probably rightly so at times of just being very negative about these sorts of things and I think that one of the things that really needs to happen if we are to actually address the broader issue around actually the conditions under which sexual violence and sexual harassment are made legitimate, I suppose, is to think about questions around vulnerability and ethics of care and how we come to understand the vulnerabilities of others. And that transcends any kind of potential, you know, sexual exchange but actually thinking about mm -hmm. how we interact and treat other people and how we become critically reflexive of our, of our own power and how we use that in particular situations. And so if we think about the workplace, for example, which seems like the most obvious site when we're thinking about Me Too, because of course that's really what it's become about is around se workplace sexual harassment, is to think about how we can mitigate the way in which people use power in problematic ways 
um, to manipulate people to get them to do what they want, to not think about how what we might be doing or saying or asking of someone else would be affecting them. Mm. And that, you know, then of course transcends into sexual relationships as well and thinking about how power operates in intimate relationships. And that doesn't have to be in heterosexual relationships too. I think one of the really key things that we need to recognize and start to address is the fact that violence happens in all relationships. It's not just heterosexual relationships, which is how domestic violence and sexual assault and intimate partner violence is constructed through that rape script that I was talking about before, that it's about the power that men have over women. And of course, they absolutely do. We permit men to have power over women in multiple different ways through various political Mm. Um, you know, rights that men seem to have over women and the way in which we allow men to occupy public and private space in a way that women just aren't allowed to. But also to think about how mm-hmm. these issues transcend into LGBTQ communities and the, the kinds of ways in which power manifests in, in all intimate relationships and how we need to find more appropriate ways for thinking about how that power gets operationalized, how we come to understand vulnerabilities and what that does in terms of producing our interactions and expectations of other people Mm. and I think power is quite an interesting one because that is something that I definitely think about sexual violence a lot in terms of I mean what I would like you to talk about is if you can about power relationships and how they um, sort of interact with sexual violence just because I don't think it's as clear we kind of assume it is but I don't Mm. know if it is. I think you know power is an interesting concept as well we can think about power in multiple different ways certainly we can think about it in terms of power is being top down that power is something that one has over another person or another thing but power you know is also a productive mechanism power can produce particular effects and i think that one of the interesting things with sexual violence and if we're thinking about disrupting this rape script that we have this normative rape script that i described before mm. is that this this notion of coercion and how power is coercive in the context of sexual violence and it's not just that you know that kind of top down type of power that i described before whereby you've got a stranger inflicting violence upon another stranger um whereby Usually that, you know, that rapist in our kind of, in our cultural imagination is big and and big and bad and scary and the victim is vulnerable Mm. and weak and passive. Um, What happens in more common experiences of sexual violence is this coercive power. So people might find themselves in situations where the capacity to give consent is minimized because of the various nature of the environment in which the assault is taking place for instance or so perpetrators might for example um manipulate um their their victim survivors by saying you know if you don't have sex with me i'm going to do x y and z or you know threaten them in different ways which means that there's no capacity for them to necessarily say no because their lives for example might be at stake um, but, you know, there are other ways in which power is manipulated in these situations. So, for example, if, if, if a victim survivor has been um, taking drugs or has or is drunk, for example, you know, there's obviously a, a top down kind of power being involved in that instance where particularly if the offender is sober, you know, is clearly taking advantage of someone who doesn't have the capacity to give their non-consent. And I mean, even this idea of consent is an interesting question around power and what it means you know, if we look at actually, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I can certainly kind of comment on some of the elements of contract law, for example, and consent in relation to that and how consent itself is inherently a power exchange in the sense that the person giving the consent usually tends to have less power than the person that they're giving consent to. But when we're thinking about, you know, our everyday interactions, our everyday sexual interactions, you know, consent is probably not something that we necessarily are thinking about. But when we're thinking about sexual mm. violence, it's an incredibly important part of trying to establish that power dynamic and the way in which power is being exercised by the perpetrator. So 
I think that mm. when, when, when we're examining these questions around power, coercion and consent in sexual violence, there's, there's a lot of things to take into account. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, one way in which I picturize it is that if there is, I'll take an example of India, for example, if there is a girl and there's a boy and they're the same age, you know, late teens, say 18, they're both 18 and the boy just has that social, um, I don't know, I should say clout or if he has more that he can get away with socially, his actions are, you know, there's more impunity around that. And mm. then there's also the physical element that if he is physically stronger than the girl and then she's alone and then the fact that what she says later won't be taken seriously because um maybe he comes from a certain background or a certain privilege or uh you know there's all of that at play which um very I mean that was a very simple way of looking at it but um mm. I think that's worth examining yeah and I mean I, you know just reminded me of kind of you know thinking about the, the the other layer on top of this of course as well is that we inherently disbelieve survivors when they come forward and that's layered on top of that with issues around victim blaming and rape myths too right so mm. anything that the woman might have done wrong and within the sort of typical rape script that we're talking about here you know whether she was dressed yeah. in a really slutty way for example wearing revealing clothing if she'd been taking drugs if she knew the perpetrator if she'd led him on all these kinds of things they automatically cancel out in our cultural language her capacity to give her non-consent basically she's already inherently giving consent because Mm. of these various forms of behaviors that take place and of course then the victim blaming stuff comes in it's like well you shouldn't have been drinking or you shouldn't have been dressed that way so there's another kind of power Mm. that emerges in that space there then too isn't it because it's not just about analyzing the actual incident itself it's the way in which people then respond to the event and often they are people of you know of, of authority that the police they might be you know def- yeah. defense lawyers all these kinds of things I mean they're friends and family as well let's not forget that too that you know a lot of my research mm-hmm. has revealed that you know of course we know that most sexual violence incidences are not reported to police somewhere between 80 and 90 percent never go reported to the official authorities but people report in other ways and it's often friends and family who just say oh you know you must have been you know you must have been drunk you don't remember surely that didn't actually happen are you sure you know just all these other kinds of layers of power that then emerge in response to the event itself and the ways in which that fosters this culture of denial which inherently renders survivors Mm -hmm. voices powerless in some ways yeah thank you for pointing out typical rape script elements in my example <laughs> I think, um, that's important to emphasize and th- i think this this is a good po- place for me to uh, talk about what you've explored in terms of how hard it is for people to speak up online and i mean um since me too broke and uh, there's been how many million did you say there were millions of instances of that hashtag being used? I think it was 12, 12 million in the first 24 hours, but that doesn't necessarily account for retweets, for instance, or, you know, um, shares mm. of posts. So the, the hashtag me too was used 12 million times in the first 24 hours, but that also that encompasses a wide range of different uses of the term, not just 12 million victim survivors speaking out. Yeah, in mm. that context. Yeah. And while we have talked about what Me Too doesn't um, encompass and uh, what are the problems with, you know, a blanket social justice movement on the internet uh, and wh- who it excludes, it's also, you know, this watershed mo- moment and it's extremely, extremely hard for anyone to speak about their sexual assault or, or, or any sexual violence that they've faced. So what is it uh, like for victims to share their experiences online in the spaces that you've looked at? Well, I think that there's... I mean, I could say two things about that. The first, I think, is that it's incredibly difficult. And even when victim survivors are speaking out in an anonymous capacity, they take great risks in doing so. Once you put your story online, there's no control that you have anymore over what's going to happen to that story. Mm. Um, So. It could be that a bunch of trolls or other, you know, online misogynists get a hold of it and they 
basically start to say really awful things about you or they try to undermine your experiences or whatever it might be. And that, of course, has a further kind of disempowering impact on many victim survivors who perhaps haven't even told their immediate families or even their friends, their close Mm. friends, that they've experienced sexual violence. So I think that on the one hand, it's deeply risky. And on the other hand, something Mm. like Me Too creates an opportunity for survivors to speak out en masse in a way that disrupts the normal paradigms that govern what can and cannot be said about sexual violence. But I think that it's important for us to remember that that's a very specific moment in time and that the momentum that sits behind a really big social movement like Me Too is incredibly powerful for that initial impetus for speaking out. And of course, when there's this flurry of people kind of talking about their experiences, you get swept up in that mob mentality and it's only natural that you will, you know, that that that, that becomes a kind of um, opportunity for you to then get on board and share your experiences as well. But a lot of the work that I've done is looking at everyday survivors' practices of, of speaking out and sharing their experiences online and then kind of trying to maintain a conversation, not about their experiences such, but about some of the broader kind of issues around rape culture, for instance, and, and addressing the harms of sexual violence in a, in a much more cult, sociocultural context. And that is an, mm. a much harder thing to do than just that one moment in time when one has this opportunity to speak out as part of a broader social discussion and social conversation around sexual violence Mm. and it's not just that um you know it's that kind of loss of your narrative once it goes out into the public sphere it's also too thinking about the effort the labor involved in maintaining these conversations and trying to find something else to keep talking about without it just kind of disappearing into the ether and that's Mm. a problem that a lot of social movements experience it's not just to do with sexual violence of course but I think that that's one of the biggest challenges Mm. with the Me Too movement as well is that where do we go from here how is it that we can continue to maintain momentum because ultimately we know that from 40 years of speaking out and thinking that it's going to end the violence, I mean, the, the slogan, you know, breaking the silence will end the violence was kind of one of the, the sort of lo- underlying logics, I suppose, if you will, of feminists encouraging mm. survivors to speak out. We know that that's not going to end the violence. And there's lots of reasons why that is. Um, so we need to think about what comes after that speak out. And I suppose I spoke before about, you know, thinking about challenging our understandings of vulnerability and power and all those kinds of things. And ultimately that gets to the heart of what we mean when we're talking about rape culture, which is, you know, often a, uh, kind of phrase, if you will, that gets thrown around a lot by feminist activists and academics as well around. What do, you know, you know. Of course, it's rape culture. Rape culture is the cause. Well, what does that actually mean? Or it's a cause. What does that actually mean? Mm. And I think that that's where we fall short is being able to explain. Well, actually, this is what we mean by rape culture, which is, of course, you know, thinking about the ways in which that men's sexual subjectivity is privileged over women's. About the ways in which you know, little things that might seem harmless, like catcalling and street harassment and stalking and things like that, they kind of seem like not really that much of a problem. They're not physically hurting anybody as opposed to say something like sexual violence that does have, you know, at least in the cultural imagination looks like it has more harmful um, effects than say just, you know, everyday acts of sexism and harassment. Um, Mm -hmm. But they become part of our cultural language that devalues women's bodily autonomy, that devalues their sexual subjectivity and their sexual agency. That means that they are structured as inherently raped or already or inherently rapeable or already raped. So they are objects, Mm. you know, that don't have any kind of agency. And so we really need to think about how we're going to break down these barriers. And it's so hard when all we see in our cultural fabric is, you know, images of semi-naked women and you know, just on advertising and things like that, just or on television, you know, where women are dressed in particular ways and don't really ever talk on TV shows. And so they're just objects. They don't actually have any agency. Mm. They don't have 
any kind of value and there's no intrinsic value beyond their objectivity of their um of their mm-hmm. of their visual appeal and i think that making that connection between the way that society structures women as objects not political subjects with their own capacity to um to be able to act as as independent agents is at the heart of this problem but making that connection between that issue and sexual violence is a very hard and very contentious issue and a lot of people don't really want to go there and actually have an in-depth conversation with you about it yeah yeah that's all that's all very true and also i think worth emphasizing what you're saying is that of course if if someone chooses to dress any certain way it's um it's their choice but the the, fa- the fact is that more often than not women are limited to just being uh you know just dressing a certain way and not having any agency over the conversation or over what they can say or like what they can ask for so it's it's very much limited to them being viewed as those uh, objects and we before we started recording we were talking about how um the mainstream perception or the mainstream uh reporting of me too reproduces these problematic stereotypes and it re- reinforces sexual violence as like we spoke about monstrous and it's removed from everyday life like you know these strange men raping these passive vulnerable women and that's the one type of victim they can be in one type of perpetrator so 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 can you elaborate on this uh, the, the problems that mainstream reporting of me to uh, reproduces well i think it produces a few different issues i think on the one hand um there's been some interesting research done by Catherine Royal who's a uk scholar looking at how the initial reporting on the me too movement tended to be very sympathetic towards Harvey Weinstein for example mm. and you know describing the ways in which you know he was flanked by his family outside court and you know he's been struggling to sleep and having all these other issues you know in his personal life since the allegations had surfaced and so on the one hand we have this this compelling problem with the news media reporting around how much they side with the perpetrator or at least become very sympathetic to the perpetrator and there's another um very interesting piece of research that's been done here in Australia by a woman named Jane Gilmore who's a journalist and is currently completing their PhD looking at how in the Australian context headlines of articles about gender-based violence in particular but also looking more specifically at sexual violence how those headlines themselves have a tendency to erase not only the victim to side with the offender but also really naturalize and humanize them as well they don't even describe the experience as sexual violence for example they talk about it as being rough sex for example which is a big topic right now in the news in New Zealand for instance whereby there was recently um a guilty verdict in court um in favor of a of a, of a murder victim who was strangled and then um, killed by a guy that she was on a Tinder date with, and mm. he used the he used the the claim oh, it was rough sex that that's what killed her. And of course, but I've seen other recent headlines um, coming out of the United Kingdom actually in response to some of the reforms that have happened to rape laws recently, whereby defend defence lawyers are now saying oh no it was just rough sex, and that kind of becomes the the way in which they erase the violence um, from mm. the actual act itself, and so. What we the media play a big role in how the public and 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 kind of everyday conversations about sexual violence come about. So if they're erasing the the victim, if they're siding with the perpetrator, and they're not even calling it sexual violence, well, of course they're just creating an environment in which sexual violence doesn't really seem to be um, an issue. And I think one of the other things that they tend to do is they tend to trivialise the violence as well. Um, and that's partly through what I just described with the ways in which they erase the violence itself from the headline and the way that they describe it in the in the articles too. So I think that on the one hand, um, yes, you know, newspaper reporting and media reporting on on sexual violence is highly problematic, but also it kind of creates this space where there's actually an opportunity for there to be 
changes with that as well. And one of the great things about some of the work that Catherine has done is that she's actually made some recommendations that are very easily implemented for journalists who are reporting on these issues to actually implement in their practices. And of course, it helps if you've got a good editor for your newspaper who's, you know, being kind of aware of these sorts of things. But the way in which victims also get constructed in ways that are, you know, reinforcing this hegemonic rape script, this, this rape script that we talk, that we've been keep coming back to, you know, that it is mm. the imperative of newspapers, of course, to sell papers because they want to make profit and all that kind of stuff. But in doing so, they are capitalizing on this idea of what academics, feminist academics have called real rape, which is the stranger rape, which is the hegemonic rape script, um, in which, you know, the perpetrator is a stranger and the, and the victim is this passive, vulnerable object or person that has, has been um, on the receiving end of this violence perpetrated by this person. Or it's someone like Harvey Weinstein, right? who is clearly quite monstrous, you know. They talk about his sexual perversions in, you know, kind of mental health terms as well. It becomes depoliticized, it becomes personalized, it becomes about one individual and their and their and their shortcomings rather than looking at our social and cultural fabric more broadly and taking a deeper look about how it is that those kind of political conditions of everyday life are what enable sexual violence to take place in the first place. And that nobody believes survivors when they come forward. So there's there's multiple kind of interlocking issues really with the way that the news media have engaged with representations of sexual violence. And I think that whilst it has changed somewhat since, you know, the 1980s, for example, when newspapers started first getting quite interested in reporting on sexual violence, but we still have a very long way to go in terms of actually having much more realistic representations of victim survivors in the news media. What are these uh, guidelines that Catherine suggested? That's a good question. I would direct I would direct you to her chapter which is in our collected edition called Me Too Hashtag Me Too and the Politics of Social Change, where she has an she has a chapter in there looking at the different guidelines associated with reporting on gender based violence and she's got a list of really fabulous recommendations at the end of that. And if you are currently able to get your hands on a copy of that book Pelgrave Macmillan who are our editors uh, sorry our publishers for the book it's currently selling for like nine euros or something like that up until the third of December so if you want to get a copy get in <laughs> quick and but I think they also have some free previews yeah, online too so you might be able to get a free preview of the chapter that's, that's a really good shout thank you <laughs> um yeah and what you've um what you've said just also reminded me of the Aziz Ansari case mm. and I remember this uh this there was a CNN I can't remember who it was but someone the female anchor from CNN who did this five minute long monologue after this this the open letter that uh that Aziz Ansari's victim wrote and she, she essentially took those five minutes to to talk about how this woman was trashing what women like her had achieved by speaking out and by uh, using their activism to advocate for um, legitimate forms of uh, Mm -hmm. sexual violence. And that backlash, I think, was, I mean, of course, it was really uh, unfortunate, but it was also really telling of how what is legitimate Mm -hmm. and what is socially legitimate considered legitimate and what is you know not good enough as uh, as as a crime or or as a transgression that deserves sympathy so I think bringing in Liz Kelly's continuum if if I'm able to say from bad sex or bad instance of sex to uh, violent sexual abuse or sexual assault that sort of bad sex and that um you know a murky consensual agreement that side of things is still not considered um, good enough for mainstream attention well the babe that the sorry the aziz and sari case is quite interesting because babe.net essentially solicited that that kind of testimony from the pseudonym of the woman was grace so mm. there's some kind of there's some other interesting ethical dilemmas going on in relation to how that case unfolded and if I'm I'm not sure of the specifics, but there's a couple of chapters and again in our editor collection that address some of those challenges in a bit more of a um critical way. 
But if I could just say a few more things about this idea of, you know, that when, unless rape looks like our kind of, you know, traditional rape script, then it's just considered to be Mm. bad sex. There's a really wonderful book written by um, a woman named Nicola Gavey or Nicola Garvey called The um, Just Sex, The Cultural Scaffolding of Rape. And she goes through in this incredible way looking at how, again, like to draw on Liz Kelly and these ideas around, um, you know, rape culture and the sort of, you know, more minor or perceived perceived to be more minor incidents as like harassment and those sorts of things as mm. kind of contributing to our kind of delegitimization of certain experiences or, th- or things yeah. that are perceived to be as less bad than others. And I think that, you know, there's this in- inherent in, in this question, I think too, is what should be the appropriate response as well? Because of course, you know, we sort of turn to the criminal justice system as a site in which we think justice ought to be done. We know that only very narrow experiences of sexual violence ever end up before a court and very few will end up in a you know with a with a guilty conviction as a result and so you know the, these these women who are responding to the Aziz Ansari case for example and they're talking about you know that they're making it you know a mockery I suppose of of these women who apparently have had you know so-called worse experiences than others I mean I think that mm. you know that it becomes becomes a broader question not only about you know well is it is it a is it a useful thing to think about experiences in terms of a hierarchy I don't think it is I think that they again Mm. all part of this continuum that really legitimizes violence against women and it it positions women as objects rather than political social cultural subjects and it also has the effect of turning to the law as the side of redress and we know that you know mm. on top of these issues with victim blaming and rape myths within the, the criminal justice system itself and the way that they get operationalized the justice system itself is overloaded and overburdened and it takes a good three to five years before a case will even come before a court because of the time constraints and all those sorts of things about you know not having enough resources so I think that it, mm. it, it kind of begs broader questions which is some of the work that Bianca and I have been doing and I know that Bianca does a lot more work than I do on this topic is really thinking about alternative avenues for justice and how we might see using some of these digital tools and these digital spaces as sites in which alternative avenues for justice are being sought and in some instances that might just be being able to speak out about one's experience and being able to just have the opportunity to have that voice and to have that validation from people who are witnessing your experiences and speaking back to you in these digital spaces. And I think that that's where, you know, Mm. these issues around kind of legitimate versus illegitimate rape and things like that are coming from it. I think that there's this inherent question around the criminal justice system as being the arbitrator of whether or not, and, and by extension, society becomes the arbitrator of whether or not one's experience looks good enough to be considered to be rape. Mm-hmm. And if not, then, you know, it, it positions other um, experiences better or worse than others. But really, I think what we're talking about here are broader underlying issues around gender justice and more specifically gender injustice that enable mm-hmm. these experiences to continue to happen on a daily basis with no outlet for support, no outlet for response. And that's where digital spaces have become incredibly powerful, I think. Whether it's something like the Me Too movement or perhaps some of the more smaller intimate and intimate spaces that I do research in, whereby, you know, you've got very small numbers of people who are engaged in these spaces, maybe like 20 to 30 people tops, you know, who mm-hmm. are just supporting, witnessing each other, doing incredibly powerful political work on a very personal basis. Hmm, that's that's all very interesting. And um, what do you make of, if I can ask you that, what do you make of this criticism of um, Me Too and alternate justice movements that there's this sort of mob-like handling of the person who's considered to be guilty? Well, I think that there's multiple different ways in which survivors are speaking out online. And in fact, very few actually name and shame the offenders, right? Because I think the question you're asking me really is around what's the effect of naming and shaming perpetrators in online spaces? And certainly, you know, in the Australian context, we have very tight defamation laws that prevent that from really happening. And we've seen a backlash against Mm. many survivors who have spoken out about powerful media men in the Australian context. And the effect of that, of course, has been to completely undermine and destroy the victim survivor and created a whole heap of issues around consent as well. So, for example, um, there's one case 
in which um, Jeffrey Rush, who's a celebrated Australian actor, was accused of sexual harassment by someone who he was working on a play with um, in King Lear during the Sydney Theatre production sorry, the Sydney Theatre Company's production of King Lear back in 2015, I think. And um, she was named by the media when she had chosen not to come forward, that they had named her without her permission, essentially. Mm -hmm. So there's another kind of layer of consent going on there too. Of course, that wasn't online, um, but certainly the the ways in which you can, you can and can't sort of speak out um, and name perpetrators is, is a kind of interesting area in terms of thinking about you know, vigilante mobs and, and, and that is a kind of structuring of justice. When we are doing research on this particular issue, we're not really thinking about it in terms of vigilante justice as such, but thinking more about it as justice from the victim survivor's perspective. And there's been some really great research done mm. here in Australia and also in the UK, thinking about this notion of victims justice needs and also victims justice interests. And if we think about it in terms of justice interests, then it um, paints survivors, victim survivors as people with political interests and, and things that they need to get out of justice processes. So we talk about things like voice, validation, recognition, control. Um, there are things like, um, you, you know, elements around accountability and things like that, which work well in the restorative justice space. So, you know, in, increasingly um, survivors in Australia and New Zealand, for example, have the opportunity to go to restorative justice um, avenues as opposed to criminal justice avenues whereby mm. the survivor can meet with the offender and these sorts of yeah. justice needs and, and interests can manifest in particular ways. And although they can't all be met in the online space, certainly Bianca Philiborn, who's my, my co-editor on the Me Too book, and, and myself and my own research have really looked at the ways in which victims' justice needs are being met through being able to, to speak and to share their experiences in digital spaces and certainly there are sites where perhaps perpetrators aren't being directly named but they might be indirectly being named so I've done some work on um, a, re a website called Project Unbreakable whereby survivors are inadvertently naming and arguably naming and shaming the people who have um, assaulted them or sexually victimized them but they're not directly naming and shaming them but I wondered you know mm. to what extent having that voice, having that control, at least in the sense that they're able to speak on their own terms and in their own voice without having someone else speak on their behalf is an incredibly powerful experience for those survivors. You know, that they're not necessarily looking mm -hmm. for legalistic responses. They're actually really looking for a kind of collective validation that not only acknowledges their experience but acknowledges it in a broader context in which sexual violence is considered to be normal and that or not normal as such but you know that 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 sexual violence is is condoned or at least tolerated yeah exactly yeah and i think what you've highlighted is that this uh the naming and shaming is one aspect of me too it's not even something that happens everywhere it's you know it's one part of it whereas these criticisms that override this whole movement because of certain instances may not be entirely reflective right mm. Mm. yeah what i want to ask you is and i hope i really hope i haven't run out of time if that you know, <laughs> time for a couple more questions no that's cool <laughs> what is um what is the emotional impact of doing this research you're looking at these chat rooms where you know mm. women are sort of detailing these horrendous experiences and you're like diving into the dark underbelly of the internet and you know looking at all these like maybe sometimes terrible responses to these instances and um is there is there an emotional con cost to this work yeah it's a great question it's hard doing this kind of work and of course it's absolutely vital and essential to be doing this sort of work and I think that we often don't acknowledge to ourselves just how hard and the kind of emotional toll that the work takes out of you I think that it's really important for anyone who's working in any kind of social justice context to be mindful of the toll that it takes on you to be working in these spaces and to be trying to figure out ways to prevent these injustices from occurring as well and it took me a little while mm. to 
realize just how much it was impacting on my life and I think that you know what's just really important is that you recognize your limits and that when you feel like things are getting too much to take a break and to step back from it and to just you know go and snuggle your cats or go for a walk and 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 kind of be a little bit out of your head because it is it is challenging work any kind of work like I said before that involves you know violence or inequality or just 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 the general kind of shitness of the world sorry is 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 just it's it is hard you know and I think that we have to you know be be very meticulous in practicing self-care in these instances and I know that Mm. you know some people think that self-care is such a neoliberal thing to do in which you know it's just all about the self and it's very individualistic but I think that self-care is also a political act as well like for for women we don't really do a very good job of looking after ourselves because usually we're looking after a bunch of other people whether it's our partner or our children or you know, in the classroom or just in general as, you know, we're socially conditioned to be carers. So I think that in doing so, we don't care for ourselves. And that's a very radical thing, I think, to take back and just be mindful of the impact of your everyday life on yourself. But particularly when you do work like this, it's very hard to to ever not, you can't not help but get emotionally involved and invested in the work that you do. Mm, Yeah, and I think coming back to self-care, I was reading this little thing about when Audrey Lord wrote about self-care, she very much meant it as a political Mm. weapon because she was diagnosed with cancer and, uh, you know, black women didn't have access to healthcare in the same way that others would. So that that is what she meant by self-care and I think that that's like completely I mean that's the most valid thing yeah <laughs> I think neoliberal criticism definitely that if, if a company is trying to sell me a face mask and branding it as self-care that's maybe uh, not not what she meant but I think uh, what how Audrey meant is completely like that's bang on yeah um, <laughs> what what's next for you like what are you looking at now and what are you going to look at in the future in terms of research work Oh, the million dollar question. Um, so at the moment, I'm in the process of, so I just published a book, a co-edited collection, as I said before, with my very good friend, Dr. Bianca Philiborn, who is a stellar academic and they're doing a lot of really great research on sexual harassment at the moment, amongst other things. My research at the moment is really still drawing on a lot of the stuff I was doing in my PhD. I'm in the process of turning that into a book. It'll, it's coming out next year hopefully it's called online anti-rape activism the politics of the personal in the age of digital media and that is really kind of looking at that work that I was doing in my PhD through the lens now of me too I mean one of the things that I thought about in relation to the me too movement was that it it literally emerged about three weeks after I'd passed my PhD and confirmed a number of things that I'd already discovered in my thesis. So on the one hand, it was quite affirming to sort of see that what I had argued in my PhD was was quite valid in relation to the emergence of this particular social movement. But at the same time, too, I thought, oh, my goodness, I've got to get this published really quickly so that nobody else kind of, you know, can, you know, can come over, come, come in and steal my thunder, <laughs> so to speak. Um, but so I'm working on that at the moment. But I'm, I'm also I'm currently leading a project here um, in Wollongong looking at young people's attitudes towards domestic and family violence which also includes what they understand about healthy relationships and in particular you know the use of of sexual Mm. violence and and how they come to understand that in relation to healthy relationships my my you know my my passion project really though is looking at um, survivors reporting practices actually whether that's using digital spaces to report sexual violence or using you know, the criminal justice system or looking at more kind of cultural practices of reporting sexual violence. So for instance, you know, I'm quite, I'm quite kind of intrigued by how survivors use, for example, you know, certain types of public and semi-public spaces to report their experiences of sexual assault. So like on the backs of bathroom walls, for example, or on, you know, little Mm -hmm. um, like university um, campus spaces and things like that. So I'm hoping to um, develop a little bit more of a project around that. And I'm also really keen and have been 
uh, working in collaboration with a few other academics, namely Caitlin Mendez, um, around developing a bit more of a detailed understanding about the emergence of digital feminist activism and mapping some of the kind of relationships that we've seen between different types of online activism. So, you know, you asked me earlier in the interview around the sort of history, I suppose, of speaking out about sexual violence and and using digital spaces in particular to speak out about that. There hasn't really been much of an attempt to really map the sort of historical trajectory of the use of digital Mm spaces to speak out about feminism more broadly but more specifically looking at sexual violence and so we're hoping to do a little bit more research around developing a bit of a digital archive looking at how these Mm. these kind of new feminist movements have emerged in online spaces and what does that tell us about you know global networks what does that tell us about the ways in which you know feminists connect with their histories how do we develop more kind of political conversations out of the sharing of personal experiences and that sort of thing. So there's a few projects that I've got kind of on the back burner, but the only kind of official thing at the moment, I suppose, is my is my book project that'll be out next year. Oh, I'm so excited to read that book. Um, I can't <laughs> to read it. <laughs> and I think even your research work is so fascinating to read. I'll put links to what I read in the uh, episode description. So I would recommend anyone who's um who's you know whose interest has been piqued by this conversation to go ahead and read um, Rachel's work because it's so 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 intriguing and so easy to read as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you so much for yeah, having thank me. Thank you for your time today. No, no, but it, it's just such it's such important work and also, you know, it's so essential to talk about this and what you're looking at and mapping out the emergence of Me Too and all of that and also looking at online spaces. It's something that we all need to look at and all need to talk about. And uh, so we all need to read this and thank you for talking to me and giving your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> That was Dr. Rachel Oni-Howers and this was episode 10. Wow, we're 10 episodes old. Thank you so much for tuning in every week and um, yeah, so many more to go. It's a very special moment and it just wouldn't have been possible if no one was tuning in. So thank you for that. And as ever, if you have any feedback, any comments, any way we can improve and I am looking to expand, do more things with the platform, um, take these conversations to even more audiences. So if you have any recommendations for how I can do that, Give me a shout out. We're on Twitter. We're at talk underscore research. We're on Facebook. Talking research is the page name. And you can also send me an email. All of these details are in the podcast description. And um, if you need, there are links to organizations that support survivors and victims. Um, They're also in the podcast description. So feel free to use them and um, tell me how you thought this conversation was. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Asmita and this is Talking Research.